Hi everyone, it's Andrew here. I'm really excited about today's episode on cardiac amyloidosis. Dr. Lenahan is a leading expert and master clinician when it comes to cardiac amyloidosis. He was recruited here to WashU recently um, to head up their Center for Excellence of Cardio-Oncology. He had a lot of interesting data to share about cardiac amyloidosis, and our discussion has already shaped my approach to patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and you'll soon learn why. I think you'll really enjoy this episode, and there's a lot to learn and, and to take away from this. As a gentle request for anyone who's listening for the first time, please go to iTunes and give the show a rating. Those really do go a long way. Also, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at APCardio, where I share links for the episodes and links to other cardiology-related education. Feel free to interact with me there or on my website, APCardiology.com. So without further ado, here's today's episode. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Thank you for meeting with me today, Dr. Lenahan. Can I have you first introduce yourself, your name and your title for our audience? Yes, I'm Daniel Lenahan. I'm a professor of medicine at Washington University in St. Louis and the director of Cardio-Oncology Center of Excellence. Okay. And the reason why I'm meeting with you today is that recently you uh, gave us a grand rounds, uh, particularly in on uh, amyloidosis, and you spoke specifically about cardiac amyloidosis. And there's been a lot of exciting developments in that field recently, particularly in terms of therapeutics that are now able to be offered. So to kind of start, just briefly for people who are listening, amyloidosis is characterized by deposition of protein um, within various body tissues. And it can be caused by many different subsets, which we won't necessarily get into talking today about those specifics. But a question for you, Dr. Lenahan, is how often in people with amyloidosis in general, how often does the deposition occur in the myocardium within the heart? Uh, it actually probably occurs more frequently than we know, especially because in order for somebody to have a proven diagnosis of amyloidosis, you have to be suspicious of it, and then you have to do a number of detailed tests in order to prove that. Mm -hmm. So in the situation where we're convinced that a person has amyloidosis, most of the time they have cardiac involvement, but not always. So probably 75% of the time, if somebody has established amyloidosis, will they have cardiac involvement if you look hard enough? Okay. And, and you're saying if you look hard enough, so they probably have cardiac involvement, but it may not be clinically obvious at the time of their diagnosis of their amyloidosis. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. And, and also... It's a very common condition that people would come into the hospital or to an office visit with symptoms of heart failure. And if you do an echocardiogram, for example, and their heart functions normal, that you attribute this to some nondescript cause, such as high blood pressure or, or excessive sodium intake or, or some sort of common thing. Mm -hmm. But in the instances where something made you suspicious and you pursued it further, uh, it's usually nonspecific symptoms that ultimately 
are the presentation for amyloidosis. So people have fatigue and shortness of breath and, you know, maybe uh, some unexplained weight loss or weight gain. And those symptoms don't always lead towards uh, the pursuit of amyloidosis. Rather, they're attributed to something else more common. Mm -hmm. So I think that it really does matter how aggressively you look for it. Because the more aggressively you look for it, the more likely you will find it. Okay. And, and so in those patients in which we're convinced that they have amyloidosis by whatever tests, the likelihood that it ultimately is going to have cardiac involvement is pretty high. Mm -hmm. So since you bring that up, let's go there now. Thinking about patients who get admitted to the hospital and we just generically label them as HEFPEF, you know, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. What are those, what are the, maybe the extra triggers that you should think, oh, I should test this person for amyloidosis? Because I think I remember correctly from your talk and setting that within that population of hospitalized patients with HEFPEF, there's a relatively high prevalence of cardiac amyloidosis. Yeah, so this is just now kind of being sorted out in different places. But for example, the, the one recent study looked at patients that were admitted for heart failure, had a normal EF, and when they pursued the diagnosis of amyloidosis, they came up with that diagnosis in 13%. So there's a lot of patients admitted to the hospital with HEFPEF, about 500,000 per year in the United States. Hmm. And so if you took 13% of 500,000, that's a lot of patients. That was a lot of patients. And that's a lot bigger number than what we would have proposed, you know, as the incidence of amyloidosis. So, yeah, I think it's a whole order of magnitude higher than what we are previously thinking of. Gotcha. And then if you do autopsies on people that die and you look at their cardiac tissue, uh, staining appropriately for amyloidosis as you age, you know, if you do autopsies in people that die when they're 80 or 90, uh, basically 100% will have evidence of amyloidosis in their heart. Mm -hmm. So again, if you look for it, you will find it. Gotcha. And uh, the question is, is we don't want to wait until it's so obvious where, you know, some image or uh, EKG findings or MRI or whatever other tests that you're doing is so abnormal that you say, yeah, for sure, this is amyloidosis. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's way too late. So we have to learn how to, you know, perhaps we have to learn how to read the tea leaves a little bit better. You know, the, the little signs, the little symptoms that tip you off that something's not right. Gotcha. So that's interesting. You stated that basically as people age, the um, prevalence of amyloidosis being found from them increases almost to like 100%. So it's almost like you cannot avoid getting amyloid deposits as yeah. you age. Yeah, and so one of the more common questions is, is when they talk about Alzheimer's and dementia, mm-hmm. they say they're amyloid deposits. Yeah. And people 
then go, are those the same amyloid deposits? Mm -hmm. And I honestly still don't know the answer to that question, but, you know, it's quite possible. Okay. So, in that the sign, you know, signs of early aging in your brain are amyloid de deposits. You know, that may be, you know, for lack of better description, a sign of aging in your heart or other tissues. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the amyloidosis deposition. Gotcha. It's one of those things that are standard clinical tests that suddenly say, it's very obvious that there's cardiac involvement. Mm -hmm. If we wait for that, then a long time has passed and the disease has deposited extensively. So just like if it was a cancer, for example, you don't want to wait until it's stage four cancer. You want to get mm -hmm. it at its earliest place where an intervention is going to have the most likelihood of, of success. Sure. So when we're talking about these elderly patients who develop amyloidosis, is that what we call this like senile or like wild type amyloidosis? Because there's multiple subtypes within amyloidosis depending on their configuration of their light chains. Again, you probably could find parallels in our definition of myocardial infarction. Uh -huh. So back in the day when I was in training, you know, we, we called it uh, Q-wave or non-Q-wave infarction. And then a few years later, we started calling it ST elevation or non-ST elevation. Uh -huh. And, you know, so the terminology, terminology has changed when we've defined it differently. Okay. You know, that happens in many things, but, but certainly in cardio, in cardiology issues. So historically senile amyloidosis was detected in older people mm -hmm. and so that's how it got its name okay so now that we're in a different age you know we now are defining amyloidosis by the type uh -huh. and so ttr amyloidosis is a type and we know that some people have a mutation so we refer to that as mutational ttr amyloidosis and those that don't have an identified mutation, we call it wild type. Okay. Is that mutational the same thing as like the familial? Yes. Amyloid? Okay. Yeah. So that's familial amyloidosis is an older name. Okay. Just like senile amyloidosis is an older name. Okay. Now that is we've hopefully defined it better to a particular type, then, you know, so yes, the senile amyloidosis, for the most part, is what we refer to as wild-type TTR amyloidosis now. Okay. But honestly, you know, senile amyloidosis 10 or 15, 20 years ago encompassed familial mm -hmm. also. Okay. Because we didn't know about all the mutations. I see. And now we know about more mutations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a subset of those that were considered senile amyloidosis that probably had mutational TTR, but we just didn't know it. Sure. So I think that as we've been more discerning in defining the type and identifying mutations, then, uh, you know, now we can be more specific. 
Sure. No, that makes sense. As our knowledge increases, we can be more specific in our in our diagnoses. But of those of these types or these subtypes within amyloidosis, are there types that are more prone to uh, cardiac involvement than others? Yes, that's a good question, and we're constantly learning more details, and so that whatever we thought 10 years ago, we may think differently now. But for example, uh, familial amyloidosis, if you lived in Portugal, for example, is associated with a particular mutation because it was carried down in generations from, you know, royalty, really, but the uh, mutation carried down in all the generations, since it's, a, it's basically an autosomal dominant transmission, that those patients in Portugal or Brazil mm-hmm. are more likely to have nerve involvement than cardiac Whereas the patients Mm -hmm. in the U.S. that may have come from Africa or Jamaica, some other uh, South American source of uh, mutation, that Mm -hmm. they may have predominantly more cardiac involvement. So, and then there are different mutations where it's it's in between. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I showed one one figure where it kind of highlights that, that, you know, the V30M mutation mm-hmm. is predominantly neuropathy, and that's the one that's in Portugal. Okay. It came from Portuguese and Spanish uh, royalty, uh-huh. whereas V122I is, it's in 3 to 4% of African Americans in the United States. And in particular, in the St. Louis area, uh-huh. there may be a little bit higher prevalence of that mutation because that's where those people, you know, those families have, have settled. Uh, whereas when I was in Tennessee, there was an Appalachian variant that was more likely to be encountered, and that's this T60A. Mm-hmm. And so it does matter what region of the country or world that you're in as to how the amyloidosis may manifest. Gotcha. It usually is a combination of, at least TTR is is a combination of neurologic and cardiac disease predominantly. Now, is this like sickle cell disease in that being a heterozygote for these confers a survival advantage, whereas a homozygous then relates to then full-on amyloidosis disease, or is it? It's a good question, but it, we don't think that it uh, is in the same. I mean, uh, sickle cell is an autosomal recessive condition. So, in order to have true sickle cell disease, you have to have both okay. genes. You Whereas, can be a an SC trait, so you can be a carrier, mm-hmm. and you may be able, you may ultimately transmit that to your children, but you'd have to, you know, be married to a similar carrier. Mm-hmm. For, for a child to have sickle cell. Uh, the, in the case of most or all of the TTR genes, they're felt to be autosomal dominant. Okay. So if you get the gene, 
then then you have it. It doesn't matter whether you have both genes or one gene, you have enough. Mm-hmm. But the the complex issue there is penetrance. So you have the gene doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have the disease. Mm-hmm. So we're still trying to learn, you know, what brings what brings disease on. Yeah. And I've had families of people that had disease. They were all the same sex, for example, similar age within a couple of years. And two of them had the mutation and one of them didn't. And one person had tremendous disease manifestations. The one who had another one who had the mutation had no disease manifestation. And then the person who didn't have the mutation, you know, was otherwise fine. Mm-hmm. So you know, have a, a wide variability of how the disease manifests in any individual patient. So you can have the mutation, not necessarily have the disease. Yeah, now it's very similar, I think, to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I was talking with Dr. Bach about this, and there's a lot of genes in there that um, that can confer that disease, but it's a greater issue of, of their penetrance, just having the gene yeah, itself. Yeah, and, and the other thing about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that's both similar and different is that there's there's a certain number of genes that are clearly associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And there are certain genes of those that are very high risk. So they'd match those to some sort of familial condition and, and it's high risk. Okay. There's a whole nother set of genes. So if you say, okay, we got these 10, let's just put a number on it, 10 high risk genes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fully another 40 or 50 that aren't necessarily high risk genes. They're, but they're abnormal. There's something not right about them. And so they refer to those as variants of unknown significance. Mm-hmm. So they recognize that it's not, quote, normal, but it may not confer disease. Mm-hmm. And it also may not confirm high-risk disease. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, in the case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there are a lot of disease mutation, possible disease mutations, that we don't know whether they really mean anything or not. Uh-huh. And to say that process is similar for TTR is partly true. There are a number of genes that we know are highly associated with disease. I think that there are probably a number of other genes that we don't, they're, they're kind of like the hypertrophic thing where it's very variant of unknown, unknown significance. Okay. And, you know, it's going to take a lot of careful research to, to say, graduate one gene from a variant of unknown significance to one of disease manifestations. And so I think this is something we're learning about all the time. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's a certain set of genes that are known to be associated with TTR and and those are, that's what we screen for. Gotcha. Okay. Very interesting. So when we're talking about then screening for genetic mutations, like I want to circle back again to this issue of our inpatients and that relatively high prevalence of amyloidosis within HEFPEF patients, like that 13%. So 
as you'd mentioned, there's this like, you know, end stage presentation of amyloidosis that's catching it too late. You know, the conduction abnormalities, the thickened myocardium, clinical heart failure with congestion, shortness of breath. What might be, I suspect that there's probably some thoughts or some people who would argue for just universal screening of all inpatients with HEFPEF, you know, to screen for amyloidosis. What might be other uh, clinical suspicions or other laboratory evidence, anyhow, on your initial evaluation that may suspect you to lead and to thereby enrich your population even more for whom you're testing? It's a really good question, and I would say we're already screening for it. We just don't realize it. We don't recognize it. Mm. So if you have a person that's admitted for HEFPEF to the hospital, what percentage of those patients get an echo? I mean, there's a lot. I'm on the renal consult service right now, and I just went and saw somebody admitted with HEFPEF, and they had an echo just a couple days ago. So what would be your estimate for the number of, of people that get an echo first-time admission for heart HEFPEF? Uh, I'm gonna say it's probably not 100, percent but it's easily over 50. percent Oh, I was probably like 100%. 70 or 80. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, I of course I'm a cardiologist. I see cardiology patients, so you know they're probably not even gonna call me until they get an echo. But uh-huh. but the uh, the likelihood, and actually, if you just look at indicators for people who are admitted for heart failure in the country, mm-hmm. what is one of their indicators? The the first indicator that they ever even put out for CMS to determine readmission rate was EF. Mm-hmm. So you have to do an EF assessment of one form or another. Most people are going to do an echo. So, uh-huh. yes, basically 100% of people will get an echo or should at some point, you know, during a hospitalization. So you're okay. already screening. You're already screening for that. Uh-huh. And then also, what percentage do you think get an EKG who are admitted for heart failure? Oh, 100% easily. Okay. Yeah. So 100%. And how many of those people admitted for heart failure do you think you do a troponin? Oh, again, the ER. It's 100%. Everyone. Yeah. So, so you're already screening for it 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. The question is whether you're putting those three things together to tell you that I need to be suspicious of something else. Mm-hmm. That's the real question. So if you do an echo and the EF is normal and they have mild LVH and their troponin is 0.04, just barely abnormal, uh-huh. and you look at their EKG and it doesn't have any LVH signs, let's just say that. Okay. Minor nonspecific STP wave changes. Okay. That person right there easily could be somebody whose first presentation for heart failure was from amyloidosis. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying every one of them would be, but you've already screened for conditions. And if you have LVH on echo, even mild LVH on an echo, and you don't have any LVH findings on an EKG, and you have troponin abnormalities, that's a, those are all pointing in one direction, or they should. Okay. 
that doesn't mean you go and do a myocardial biopsy on every person that comes into the hospital with FFF. Sure. That has a little bit of LVH and a little bit of troponin and all that. But I would at least run it across your mind. But you might trigger you to then get like a, an SPEP, a serum protein electrophoresis, or a serum-free light chains, a immunofixation. Those exactly. You might do those other tests. and uh, Or if you know you see kind of a large mismatch between the, the LVH and the voltages, for example, you know, making you a little more suspicious of amyloidosis and you know, you want to um, And that's what you're referring to when you see the LVH on the echo, but you're not seeing the correspondingly EKG criteria of LVH on their EKG. That's the kind of mismatch you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then and that's a very typical presentation. And then, you know, you might decide to do some other tests to look at the cause of cardiomyopathy. So if you have mild LVH on an echo... Mm-hmm. What are you attributing that to? Since you're on nephrology, you know, you might attribute that to hypertension. hypertension. Oh, yeah. You just say, oh, you know, this person, they've been struggling with high blood pressure for five years. Uh, yeah, that's that explains that. Okay. Sure. I mean, that may be true, but that same thing happens in the neuropathy space where a diabetic who suddenly has neuropathy you know, maybe it's even fairly prominent. They're really bothered by it. Mm-hmm. You're going to attribute that to diabetes. But if you had some of these other parameters that were saying, you know, that may not explain everything, that you would, you may investigate that neuropathy as not being from their diabetes, but from some other condition. So, so I think it's common things are common, of course. High blood pressure resulting in HEFPEF admission to the hospital is certainly a common thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that all of those equal amyloidosis, but I am saying that maybe 10%, maybe 13% do. Yeah. And that's, I think, maybe what I was wondering about earlier when I asked about screening them. Just do we get an SPEP on all of these people when they come through? You know, a screening to that level, checking directly Yeah, well, for I amyloid. think that if you, if, if their if their EKG and echo make you a little suspicious, and uh, let's say they have a couple of troponins that are just a little bit abnormal, mm-hmm. then yeah, I would I would say you might want to do one other test or two. Gotcha. Whether you do serum free light chains to look for AL amyloidosis, or whether you do a TTR scan looking for TTR amyloidosis. Or whether you look for you know, do an MRI to look in for any evidence of amyloidosis. An MRI, an MRI is a good test to point you in that direction, but it doesn't tell you the type. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the serum-free light chains is pointing you towards a type. The TTR scan is pointing you towards a type. The MRI is just presence or not. And the TTR scan, if I remember right, that's a, a nuclear scan, right? A tagged nuclear scan. And you can then see the, uh, okay. And then you can see that to uptake where the TTR protein is deposited. Yeah. Um, and that kind of leads into this uh, next topic of, about additional diagnostic measures like the nuclear scans, MRIs. It's my understanding that to 
like fully 100% like make the diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis, you need the endomyocardial biopsy. Are there situations in which these other testings be positive or conclusive enough that you could say, well, maybe we don't need the biopsy for it? So there's, you know, that, that would also depend on the region of country that you're in mm-hmm. and what your practice patterns are. So there would be a difference. For example, you know, somebody who's used to seeing a lot of TTR amyloidosis and they, they uh, do TTR scans all the time and their nuclear medicine department is highly attuned to, to how to do the study properly, et cetera, then their, uh, their testing characteristics may be better than somebody who does one a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so even though the published reports suggest that TTR scanning is very sensitive and specific, I have not found that to be the case. I think it's a useful test, but it's not a definitive test. There are some people that would say if you have an identified mutation and you have a TTR scan that is definitely positive, that you don't need to do a biopsy. Mm -hmm. I have a number of individual examples of where things are more complex than that. So... I tend to go towards a biopsy, whether it's a cardiac biopsy or some other tissue, depending on which which organ is most affected. Then, you know, a kidney biopsy can be a really diagnostic test for sure. Okay. It's just I'm not a nephrologist, so I don't do kidney biopsies. Yeah. But if I was a nephrologist, I would probably be saying a kidney biopsy is a really good test. It proves not only the extent of involvement from the kidney point of view, but it also will frequently give you the type just by the way that they do the sampling. So Mm -hmm. I think a kidney biopsy is a very important test, but, you know, I don't order those and I don't do them. So, you know, the nephrology team has has to come up with that. But if I'm involved in a patient and there's a suspicion of cardiac involvement, Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm inclined to do a biopsy because, you know, we're comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And this is a center that does a lot of biopsies here. Yeah. yeah. And I assume probably the same thing there from an endomyocardial biopsy, you can determine the type of amyloidosis from there. Yes. So maybe just to kind of recap what I'm, what I'm hearing to diagnose that there are extra imaging modalities, this TTR scan, that's pretty specific for a type. But, you know, your echo, your EKG, your MRI can show you that there are, that there's, you know, amyloid there. But to then find out what type is going to require tissue or some kind of mutation, like genetic screening would be my suspicion. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that's, that's generally correct, yes. And okay. the, the standard clinical tests that we do all the time can, can point us in the right direction if you put the pieces together. Uh, but frequently we don't put those pieces together. I mean, the, the collective we, you know, everybody. Mm-hmm. Again, the example being a, a longstanding diabetic who has a neuropathy symptom. For the most part, unless you have some reason to be suspicious, you're going to attribute that to their diabetes. 
Mm -hmm. And it's only when you start pursuing it that you find that it may be due to something else. Gotcha. And just like Hefpef admitted to the hospital, if you attribute all of that or the 98% of it due to hypertension poorly controlled or dietary indiscretion, so the other common things mm -hmm. that, you know, that may be true. That, that may be the case in 90% of patients, but there's 10% of patients that that's probably not the right assumption. Yeah. So can we be more discerning about who those 10% are? Sure. And just a side comment on that. I've heard someone else describe this population of patients with HEFPEF as that diagnosis of just kind of saying that, oh, you have cancer and leaving it at that. Whereas really HEFPEF is probably going to encompass many different diseases and diagnoses within that that have yet to be fully delineated. And one of these that we're learning about currently and recently is amyloidosis is probably making up a big chunk of these patients. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, uh, that's a good analogy. I would say it's, it's a lot like that. So, you know, if somebody is admitted to the hospital for heart failure, that's a serious diagnosis. We know that anybody who's admitted for heart failure to the hospital, that they have about a 50% five-year survival rate. Mm -hmm. That's worse than most, most cancers, except for perhaps, you know, untreated lung cancer or pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. So is it acceptable to say to a patient admitted to the hospital for heart failure? that you have cancer of an unknown type and just, you know, if you're, if you're going to follow through on your analogy, no, you wouldn't do that. You would say you have cancer. We're not sure which type we got to do other tests to figure that out. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have HEFPEF and you're admitted to the hospital, it could be, or most likely is this, but we need to make sure it's not something else. Mm -hmm. That's probably how we should think about it. Yeah. I think part of what drives that attitude as well is that a lot of the trials for HEFPEF have been largely negative. I'm speaking in terms of ACE inhibitors, ARBs, you know, spironolactone, plus or minus. But when you're talking about amyloidosis, that space has all really changed recently as well. So it's not just the case that if you have amyloidosis, oh, well, we can't really do anything for cardiac amyloidosis. That space has also changed dramatically in the last couple of years. Yeah, and, and there was a paper about a year ago published, and it showed people that with HEFPEF that were admitted to the hospital, and this was a big database study, like 70,000 patients or something, and the ones that had a low blood pressure had the worst prognosis. Uh -huh. And it was significant. So if you came to the hospital and you had HEFPEF, if your blood pressure was low, then you had a far worse outcome than if you had a normal or a high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And you think, okay, well, I, I, I guess that makes sense. Does that make sense to you in general? Yeah, because it's like, well, your heart is now failing to the point where you can't sustain your blood pressure. And I guess so that you, kind these of are all people with normally up. Uh, that's that's true. That's true, but. I think EF also can be a misrepresentation misrepresentation of their 
cardiac function. Like have of, a reduced stroke, stroke volume or maybe they have a reduced strain as like another marker. Exactly. Well, so if you said, okay, what if those patients that present to the hospital with HEFPEF that had a low blood pressure actually had amyloidosis mm-hmm. and that explained why their prognosis was so poor compared to the other population. I mean, wouldn't you find that to be rather amazing? I mean, you'd go, wait a minute. Okay, maybe a low blood pressure with HEFPEF is an indicator that I need to look for something else. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what I would say. So you are screening already. Most people are already screening with an echo, an EKG, troponin, and a blood pressure. If their blood pressure is low when they present with uh, HEFPEF, uh-huh. yes, you should think of another condition. Gotcha. And so all those screening tests are done. They already are done. Mm-hmm. But whether we're putting them together is is yeah. is the real question. Yeah. The collective we, we're doing all the screening tests already. Yeah. The collective we aren't thinking of it in that regards. Right. And I, I just think that it would be really interesting, for example, to go back at that study that I was referring to and, and really look at that population that had a low blood pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, are there ways in which we could tell that amyloidosis was an important consideration in those patients? I mean, I think that that's quite possible. Yeah. So, because, I mean, if you have diastolic heart failure and you get admitted to the hospital, what is overwhelmingly the cause of that, usually? I mean, usually we'd say hypertension, hypertension diabetes. Di- yeah. Dietary indiscretion. Mm-hmm. Those are the reasons. And, you know, so you know, the presenting with a low blood pressure would be highly unusual. Mm-hmm. Interesting. No, super interesting. Let's transition a bit to talk about therapeutics, maybe in our last kind of topic here, therapeutics for cardiac amyloidosis. So as far as I know, there's been three uh, new drugs recently, I think within the last couple of years when they've come out. This year. All of them this year. All of them this year. And prior to that, treatments for amyloidosis had been like stem cell transplants and chemo- chemotherapies that were primarily run from oncology. What can you tell us about these newer medications? This is like Tefamidus, uh, Patisseran, and Inotersin. Yes, that's correct. Those are all, since April of this year, those all three have been published in the New England Journal. So those are exciting drugs to consider. Uh, Patisseran and Inotersin are approved by the FDA for peripheral neuropathy, not cardiac, but for peripheral neuropathy. Like like carpal tunnel peripheral neuropathy? Or? That is one manifestation of peripheral neuropathy, but the specific FDA uh, recommendations are polyneuropathy. Okay. So usually that involves autonomic dysfunction or peripheral neuropathy predominantly in your legs. Gotcha. Okay. So those two drugs are are FDA approved. Uh, They're very expensive. One is 
a Tizaran's given IV, the other one is given sub-Q. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be very effective at treating the peripheral neuropathy. Uh, whether they are effective at treating cardiac disease is not as well established. Okay. Uh, there is a suspicion that they may be effective, but the length of time that those studies were done is probably not enough time to see a difference. Okay. Uh, and that brings us to Tefamidus, which was recently published. They looked at 36 months, mm-hmm. whereas the other two drugs were 18 months. Okay. And if you look at the survival curves with Tefamidus, they don't separate until after 18 months. So it takes a while of treatment to really have an impact on the cardiac structure. But in the case of Tefamidus, it was a very powerful effect. When it, when it started to occur, mm-hmm. when it became apparent, it was uh, very substantial. Interesting. And now my understanding of these at a mechanistic level is that Tefamidus primarily stabilizes the protein and doesn't allow more deposition of the protein, whereas these other two, uh, patisserin and inotersin, they can actually remove the protein from where it's been deposited. No, they can't actually remove it. They suppress the production. Okay. So they primarily act on the liver and suppress the production of TTR. Okay. Which is a normally produced transport protein in your body. And the patisseran and inotersin are broadly categorized as RNA silencer type medications. Okay. So they shut down the production. Mm, okay. At the liver. I see. Tefamidus is more about stabilizing the protein so that it doesn't deposit in tissues. We are hopeful that there are new drugs being developed that are probably going to be monoclonal antibody based mm-hmm. that may leach protein out of the tissues, but those to, to date are, have not been proven, but we're, we're hopeful. Gotcha. Very interesting. Thank you. Are there any other medications that are specific towards cardiac amyloidosis other than these, um, other than tefamidus, I guess? Uh, not really. Diflunazole is a non-steroidal agent that functions somewhat like tefamidus. It's just not as potent. Okay. Uh, so, so, you know, in people that can tolerate that, uh, you know, we generally would use it. Uh, in the case of AL amyloidosis, doxycycline also functions similar uh, to tefamidus in the way that it stabilizes the protein so that it won't deposit. Okay. But again, that's both diflunazole and doxycycline. Their positive effect is more modest okay. as opposed to tefamidus, which is quite pronounced. Gotcha. So that they are, are the, the benefit of diflunazole and doxycycline is that they're available. Mm-hmm. So we can get them and we can prescribe them and, you know, patients may be able to tolerate them. Mm-hmm. 
Very interesting. Well, very cool. A lot of interesting uh, developments in the uh, amyloidosis space. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we're really excited about the new drugs that are being developed. Uh, each one is has a potential important mechanism. And ideally, I would hope that for, for amyloidosis, whether it be from AL or TTR or some other version, that we have multiple avenues to, to treat those patients. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't, we're not there yet, but, but I think it's not, it's not hard to see that that might be the way to go to treat with an RNA silencer, for example, mm -hmm. plus tefamidus, and ideally even a monoclonal antibody. So you get at the condition in all three ways. Yeah. That would be, at least conceptually, that would be really great. Yeah. And I think if you think about heart failure, for example, if you just say systolic heart failure, we started out with ACE inhibitors, we added beta blockers, they made a huge difference adding it to, mm -hmm. and then adding spironolactone on top of that added another chunk. So it was really triple therapy in that setting mm -hmm. that, that made the biggest difference. So one drug is good, two drugs is better, and then three drugs is, is, is much better. Mm -hmm. You know, in the case of systolic heart failure, we have other options too, but but that's just a summary of what happened in that space. And if you apply that summary to amyloidosis, you might be able to see the same thing. Yeah. One therapy works, two therapies work even better, possibly three therapies would be the best. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't know. That's a little ways off yeah. for sure. But We'll see if we end up in that area yeah. with multi-targeted therapy. Yeah. So I think that it's... Uh, you know, it's good that people are thinking about it and companies are investing in trying to develop new therapies. So mm -hmm. it's a, uh, an exciting time. Cool. Well, thank you for letting me t visit with you about, uh, about amyloidosis. Super. Thank you very much. To review, the most useful clinical pearl I gleaned from this discussion was how to use the information I already have with my patients admitted for heart failure to screen them for amyloidosis. So remember, look at their echo, their EKG for discordance in LVH. The other pearl is that if you have a HEFPEF patient admitted with a low blood pressure, probably your suspicion for amyloidosis should also be increased. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, who song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP, I've Used for My Theme Music. It is used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution 3.0.